Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 34 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a wax and polish, sparkle and shine beauty of a show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with Andrew Austin, then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Andrew Austin this week. We shall be exploring metaphors of movement. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Andy Austin to Hypnosis Weekly. Some of the people that I really respect the most in the fields of hypnosis and therapy speak incredibly highly of Andy. And when I put a shout out on our social media outlets for ideas of great guests, his name was mentioned many times and someone even questioned why the F I had not had him on the show sooner. There are so many subjects that anyone I'm sure would happily ask Andy about and we'll get to examine part of his work and some of his stuff later on in today's show too. I was in fact a bit nervous prior to speaking to Andy as many people had told me that he perhaps likes to court controversy and can be quite provocative at times. So here is how that went. For now, get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've been discussing just a few moments ago, I'm delighted to welcome the one and only Mr. Andrew Austin to Hypnosis Weekly. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much, Adam, and thank you for having me. It's probably a good thing there's only one. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it would be like if I met myself. <laughs> um, tell us... Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all. Um, um, can you tell us about your background, how you got into the, the, these, these types of fields, and how you arrived at where you are now within them? 
Yeah, in a, in a nutshell, um, I was a nurse to begin with, uh, adult registered general nurse. Yeah. Um, not a mental health nurse, which is what most people tend to refer to me as. Um, I did that for quite a few years, not really that interested in the job, um, but I needed it for an income. Sure. Whilst I was doing that, I qualified in 92, around about 94, I discovered you could actually do um, a hypnosis course. Right. I never knew there were such things. I, <laughs> I, I thought it was just something people either could do or they couldn't do. I, it never occurred to me back then that it was a teachable skill. Because um, like now we've got the internet, we've got you know mass communications and stuff. Back then we were pretty much reliant on libraries. Yeah. Um, so I just I just didn't know. And um, I mean YouTube, there were no downloads. These things just didn't happen. So I went off and did a, a training course, which was about a year long, um, in ninety four, ninety five. Um, discovered to my utter delight, I could do it. I was like, my, I, I can do hypnosis. I've learned how to do it, and I and I could do it. So that was that was the beginnings of it. Now, whilst I was working um, in the hospital as a nurse, um, my primary interest wasn't really the the, the physical side of stuff. I don't acquired a reputation for working with the more challenging patients who had, say, behavioral, emotional, or psychological challenges mm. presented to the system. Because I was working in the general system, um, you still get people who have quite you know, severe emotional mental health needs um, coming in for general treatment. Um, I got the reputation like, oh, give, give that one to Andy. He, <laughs> he, he likes that sort of thing. So... I, I, got a, I did a lot of jobs and did a lot of work around sort of the mental health stuff, whilst then also exploring other avenues in terms of therapy and hypnosis. Yeah. So that was back in the mid-90s. Um, in between then and now, um, I quit working in healthcare. I worked in, actually, I worked in mental health housing. I worked in industry, did lots of other training courses in everything from NLP to all the other, all the usual stuff. Mm. And here I am today. Yeah, yeah, and, and and we're going to talk a little bit about 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 one of the the areas in which you're a real leading light later on. Um, and and, and for, for for those of you that are listening that are perhaps um, a bit younger than Andy and I, a library is a place where books are kept, and and books are sort of paper based versions of all the learning stuff that um, uh, uh, that, that that you get online these days. Um, um, Andy, tell us a little bit with regards to hypnosis. Yes. How, do you, how do you define hypnosis? And uh, tell us a little bit about how you arrived at that definition or how you explain it to clients or uh, curious uh, people. Well, now let's put it like this. Do you know, I actually don't know what hypnosis is. Um, I, I used to think that I did. Um, I, I, I operated on the standard definition of hypnosis is an altered state of consciousness in which the person is deeply relaxed and open to suggestion, blah, 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 blah. Everyone can be hypnotized and everyone can go into trance, but people go into different, you know, different depths of trance. It's all different. I don't know what hypnosis is. Um, there's, the conclusion I've come to now is there are two things happening. I can do hypnosis, hmm. So I can talk in a particular way and I begin to put a pattern and a rhythm in my voice as I begin to talk in a manner that some people, as they take a deep breath, I can talk like that yeah. and people go, oh, he's doing hypnosis. Yeah. 
but I don't need to have another person present for me to do that. Mm. So we have the procedures that people recognize as hypnotic procedures, the stuff that we deliver and do. Now, on the other end, you have the, the thing that happens in the mind, the brain, the system of the, the target, the client, the subject. Mm. Um, and what that is, I still don't know. Because every time I see a person go into that kind of weird state you associate with the Paul McKenna stage shows where they do that stuff, mm. I'm just amazed every single time I see people do that. And it's not everybody, of course. It's, it's only a certain percentage of people that will do that. M- meanwhile, there's all the other people that look deeply relaxed, eyes closed, arm levitated, or they just sat there with their eyes closed. Um, maybe they're not that relaxed. Yeah. But none of those behaviors are dependent upon me behaving like a hypnotist. No. Um, so, because I've seen all of those hypnotic behaviors... Um, being carried out and done by people in the absence of anyone behaving like a hypnotherapist. So I don't know. I, I have a suspicion, suspicion it's a culturally defined thing. So when we combine the behaviors associated with a hypnotist with the behaviors associated with the subject of a hypnotist, and you put those things together, people call that hypnosis. Mm. But all of those things are collections of behaviours that happen independently of each other everywhere. Mm. That's um, um, that's fascinating. That's a really fascinating um, um, examination there, and and I think it's the first time that somebody, um, um, any of our guests, have, have have spoken about it in such a way. And I think that's um, a, a brilliant discussion for the pub. Uh, you know, I, I really, really, um, I like that idea. Um, Tell us a little bit, Andy, with regards to um, your, your own influences, um, um, some of the major influences in terms of teachers and books and authors um, that have been influential upon you and, and the way in which you work with people today, and perhaps a little bit about why they were influential. Um, I've got, there's a number, really. Um, I think the two, in terms of my clinical work and what I actually do, the two biggest influences are not hypnotists or have anything to do with hypnosis, no. or, or at least not directly. Um, R.D. Lang, the, the psychiatric writer from the 60s and 70s, who yeah. R.D. Lang, um, people associate with being anti-psychiatry, which isn't quite the case. Um, he's probably my number one influence on pretty much everything that I do. And all of the, all of the associations there were things like Gregory Bateson, uh, the Palo Alto group, Paul Vaslavic, um, and all of those other writers from Palo Alto. In terms of the stuff that I'm doing more recently, Charles Faulkner, the NLP developer, um, is probably the other biggest um, single influence. Um, it was stuff that conversations I had with Charles, whether or not he knew it at the time, um, and stuff I saw Charles do, basically opened up a whole new area for me, which has then led into the stuff that I do now with the metaphors work. Yeah. The in terms of hypnotherapy, the biggest influence will be um, Milton Erickson, and it might seem yeah. a bit weird, but I when I did that first course, that was an Ericksonian hypnotherapy course, um, indirect hypnosis. Mm. I did an entire year or so of that training, and then set up a practice group. I had no idea who Milton Erickson was. Right. Um, 
it was probably, I don't know, halfway through the course or so, I discovered that it's Milton Erickson and not the psychologist Eric Erickson, <laughs> um, which is what I had been assuming. Because I'd never heard of Milton Erickson. didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of the NLP scene or the hip. I mean, it was just a few months before. I had no, you know, I discovered that people could actually do these sort of things as a training course. Yeah. So Erickson then became, after I did the training and the, the, the Erickson training, then became an influence as I started to look at all these books and stuff. I was lucky that Southampton University, you mentioned those, those weird places called libraries, mm. their Southampton University library had pretty much everything that Erickson had ever put into print. Right. Um, and I, so I spent quite a long time in that library in the reference section um, going through all of, his, uh, all of his stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you mentioned um, R.D. Lang. Um, um, I, I, I'm guessing that probably the vast majority of our listeners will be unfamiliar with, with, with that work. Could you, could you just tell us a little bit about what it was or what it is that resonates with you and, and, and how it's influenced you? Yeah, Lang, Lang did something really unusual. What most, most psychiatric medical researchers and workers are doing is they're working with diagnostic protocols. Mm. So we identify the diagnosis, and then we have a prescription for an intervention. This is something that even most therapists do, even if they overtly reject the medical model. They find what the problem is according to their model, their own diagnostics, and then apply the technique or the procedure, which they effectively prescribe to, to deliver. Lang did something different. What he did was, rather than let's find the diagnosis, let's actually document what, what it is. What do these people do? It became known as the phenomenological, really easy to say, the phenomenological approach, yeah. which was let's, let's look at the phenomena that happens um, and then see what we can do in working with that. So rather than just pigeonhole everyone into a diagnostic category, we can actually start to understand things from a phenomenological point of view. Yeah. Um, so one of his things was, let's not drug people. Let's actually work with the kind of stuff. So let me give an easy example. Um, he visits America. Um, there's a mute catatonic who's just rocking backs and forwards. She used to take off all her clothes and just sit there rocking backs and forwards. Now, this is back in the 60s. What he then does is goes and takes off all of his clothes, mm-hmm. uh, sits next to her, rocks backwards and forwards at the same rate and speed, and strikes up a conversation. So once he's developed the rapport, he opens up communication. Mm. Um, and, of course, she opens up to him, and they have a full and frank conversation. The first one she's had in years. Yeah. Now, what he said to the other staff who look on in amazement was, well, why didn't it occur to any of you lot to do that? Now, most, most people who've got NLP or hypnotherapy experience will recognize that as a pace and lead. Yeah. Um, and there have been a number of NLP people who have claimed that story to be their own. Um, in telling telling similar stories, yeah. um, but actually it originates with Lang. It was it was in his one of his early stuff. Interesting. So I would I would suggest that Lang was doing an awful lot of stuff that was could be reframed and interpreted to be evidence of hypnotherapy or NLP that kind of stuff. But actually, it's not how he would have interpreted it. I'm sure um, he's just seeing I am a human being. Here is another human being. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, I um, um, I like that idea of kind of depathologizing mental illness um, um, in in those terms. And I think um, um, from my from my very very small um, um, amount of understanding of Lang, um, 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 there was something that that he was keen to do. Um, um, 
can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of your own experience? Um, I, I mean, I've read um, The Rainbow Machine, um, um, your book, and um, um, I thought that uh, uh, some of some of your experiences, some of your clinical experiences in there were just were just such a joy to read. And I recommend anybody listening, go and grab a copy of that book. Um, um, with regards to, to sort of applications that you've encountered um, um, in, in, in therapy or clinically, um, can you tell us a little bit about what have been perhaps some of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? Impressive is the tricky one. And to interpret that question to impressive, I, I'm impressed every time I see a person go into a trance state, someone sure. give them a suggestion or a command and it works. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is yeah. it could be like you can hear your hair growing my voice is coming out of your elbow that I find absolutely extraordinary mm. um, but similarly um, stuff involved with things like pain relief or any form of symptomatic relief yeah. or even just personal or behavioural change um, they all to me they all equally impress me yes um, I saw some, some things in the accidents and emergency department. When I was about 22, 23, I was a, a nurse in, in casualty. Um, and I saw a number of interesting things there because that was the time that I was then learning the Ericksonian hypnosis. So I was beginning to see things through a different set of filters, yeah. um, whether or not the clinicians I was seeing knew they were doing hypnosis. And one that made the biggest impression on me was the classic scenario of a badly injured child who's brought into the department, who's all very, very distressed and um, in a lot of pain and, and not very cooperative um, with what we need to do. And is basically being combative with the staff. And the, the staff there were doing their best to try and get some kind of rapport with the child by giving the child reassurance. Mm. Everything's fine. It's okay. You can relax. It will be fine in a minute. Just let... Because the kid's not having any of it. Then one of the doctors sort of pushed his way forward to the child. And I forget the exact words, but he said words along the lines of, that's really serious. That hurts. You're in a lot of pain. Oh, my God. Look at the state of your arm. And the child immediately calmed down and looked at him with these eyes that says, you understand. Yeah. Someone, someone understands it's not okay. It is bad. And I saw that as the most perfect hypnotic intervention I've ever seen mm. because it was the classic meeting the client at the client's model of the world rather than try and force a model of the world that suits the clinician. Yeah. Um, and the, the change in state of that child was virtually instant. Um, I saw another one actually with another child brought in um, from a traffic accident and was, was really in a bad state. Came into the trauma room, so we got the whole resus team there, the x-ray people already, the pediatric team were already. And of course, it's quite a, a challenging experience for the child to be brought into. As the child is transferred onto the, the trolley, the gurney, um, for us to, to work on him, the, the ward sister just looks at him, gets eye contact, and just says, I hope you've got clean underwear on. <laughs> and it was the most perfect, the timing was the most important part. Because it, in terms of redirecting the child's attention, the child understood the reference. Yeah. Um, the kid knew what was, you know, what that was about. Mm. And it was amazing the instant trust and rapport that existed between those two people. Yeah. 
And yet, to anybody else, that would be regarded or con- could be considered to be an inappropriate thing to say. Mm, yes. It's the kind of stuff that hypnotists are able to do. They can say things that are absolutely specific to the exact individual they're communicating with at the exact moment in time that makes it appropriate. Yeah. Those are the things that impress me the most, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, that's lovely. Um, and if you could go back to when you started out, so back in the early 90s, um, when you started out and you, you were doing this training um, um, and thinking about um, exploring hypnosis further, mm. um, and when you thought about becoming um, a professional in, in, in these fields, knowing what you know now, is there anything you do differently? And if so, what? And is there any sort of advice the person that you are today would give that younger you that perhaps you'd mind, uh, you wouldn't mind sharing with, with, with our listeners? Yeah, I think the, the, I don't know if I would have done anything differently because I was only doing what I could have done. There are things I would have benefited from had they been available to me. Mm. Um, and technology has made the difference here. And I'm a little bit envious <laughs> for, yeah. for people growing up today and coming into this kind of line of work. That the availability of the one thing that will change any budding hypnotist or clinician or therapist's life um, and accelerate their prefer- p- professional development a hundredfold beyond that of anybody else. And that is to buy a cheap video camera. Mm. Um, and I say this, I've said this to so many people, but most people are too afraid to actually do this. Position the video camera over the shoulder of your client and point it back at yourself and watch every single session you do. Mm. Um, if you need people to practice on, hospitals are the best place to put your posters up. Experimental test subjects required. Your safety is not assured. <laughs> um, and they'll come. They're, they're, you'll have, you'll get loads of people. Mm. But the number one thing that I think anyone could do, and I, I, I would have benefited from enormously, was to be able, would be to see myself on video. Because the problem about getting feedback from other people is that other people are generally too polite. Yes. Um, and they, they will filter what they're going to say. They filter their feedback. But when you're looking through the gaps in your fingers in horror at the video of what, <laughs> that is the best feedback you'll ever get. Yeah. Now, with repetition, of course, people can start to adjust their behavior quite quickly. Um, but most importantly, when they are communicating, when they're doing the delivery of their processes and techniques, they will start to have spontaneously an external representation of what that looks like. Because often what we intend, what we, what we think we're outputting, is not actually what's being output in terms of behavior. Um, the video camera would make all the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I suppose that's, that's evidence of a sort, and that's as much of an innocuous link as I can get to move on to our next question. And that is just really just to ask about your thoughts regarding evidence-based approaches to hypnosis. I don't understand what that question is. Uh, I'm sure. So, um, 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 what are your thoughts about about people that are, uh, or about evidence based approaches to hypnosis in terms of um, 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 working with um, um, uh, interventions that have um, that have evidence to support them, um, as opposed to ones where there is an absence of them, for example, or even about the viability of whether what what evidence actually constitutes with with any of the the soft skills stuff and the the we essentially what we're doing is, as therapists as hypnotists 
um, is changing people's experience. Now, the problem with that is how do we qualify it in a research paper? Um, th things, certain things can be measured. We can measure biometrics. So we can heart rate, pulse rate, galvanic skin resistance. All those things can be measured. Yeah. Um, how do we measure a person's personal experience of change when all we have is their word for it? Now, the problem with that, of course, is some people go, yeah, actually, that worked fantastically. That has really improved my life. I, I feel so much better. Depending on when you ask them, um, we may or may not have a long-term solution for that person that's been organized. Mm. But the other thing is, often those things cannot be measured or relied upon because we don't even know if what the person did was the cause of it. So um, the difficulty with, with standardizing testing procedures for person change work, yeah. so one person is talking effectively to another person, and the way they talk, they hope, changes that person's experience of things. Um, I, I don't know how it can be measured, because one of the other things that can happen, of course, is that we get the observer bias. Um, and I see this a lot with clinicians, yeah. especially the ones I train, in that they claim much higher success rates. They think they have a much higher success rate than they actually have. Mm. Um, so it, I don't know. My problem is it, it's such a difficult area because the other one is then the, at the moment we standardize something, so like they did years back with the hypnotic um, testing procedures they did, yeah. um, it's not just listening to a tape recording to hear what the words do to a person. My personality, your personality, the relationship we have between the two people, um, the temperature of the room, um, whether I'm in a really good mood that day or not in a good mood that day. Yeah. All of these things are, are significant factors. Yeah. I know some people as clinicians and therapists are effectively, in terms of the technique and their delivery, utterly useless, utterly useless. Yeah. But by the force of their personality, the love they feel for other people, exactly. the way that they are as a human being, everyone feels better by talking to them. Yeah. Because they're such an amazing individual to have a conversation with. Mm. The converse of that is that I've seen people who are extremely skilled at delivering stuff exactly according to protocol and how it was trained to do and all this, but the results are appalling. Yeah. Um, so there's so many factors and variables. Yeah. I honestly don't know what to make, make of evidence-based work. Um, it's, it's such a minefield, both in the positives and the negatives. Um, I don't know. Sorry. I think you make a really incredibly valid point. One of one of my own bones of contention for someone uh, with regards to standardized protocols is 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 just one of the points that you make there, which is, um, um, you know, when you're standardizing something, it, it never does take into account the true the true um, effect of the working alliance that, that, that exists or not, for example. One of, the, one of the big issues I have with my own PhD studies is that I know I want it to work. I've got a vested interest in, 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 in me wanting a certain outcome. So therefore, I need to remove myself and, and, and my vested interest in that. Um, whereas it might be more effective if, if I were the one doing it based upon the fact that I want it to work. And how do you remove that, that wanting, you know, that desire and that connection that you have with clients and so on? Um, right. um, yeah, absolutely. Because um, the other thing is, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm your client and I detect the, 
the, the enthusiasm that you have for this, for me, for giving, for, for me in my state of whatever the distress is, having to, and coming to see somebody, who, and I'm seeing somebody who's rooting for me, somebody who's on my side, somebody yeah. who's going to go, yeah, we can, that is, how do we measure that on that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And yet that could actually be something that's enormously influential. Yeah. And actually the, the hypnotic stuff is just the, the excuse by which we create that. Yeah. For example, I know homeopaths who have a very similar thing. They're very determined. I'm going to be you on the sense, sole focus of my attention. I, they're just giving little bottles of water. But the little bottles of water are the excuse by which the rest of the package can be delivered. Um, and so in many therapeutic processes, that could be what's happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that the congruence and the belief in the process that's invested by the practitioner. You know, I've 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 heard that said where, where a certain critique of hypnotherapy or NLP techniques has been angled um, to say, look, we, we just can't replicate these outcomes um, um the, the the outcomes that all the practitioners are saying they're getting with these particular techniques we just can't we can't repeat them in the yes. laboratory we can't repeat them in clinical trials and very often um, um just that you know it's it's because the, the practitioners and the therapists um believe in it and that belief carries the technique and the strategy right. and and creates creates something special within the therapy room um yep. At the same time, um, there's probably an equal number of therapists who, who are totally of the conviction that their clients are getting better when they're not. Because yeah. what they're able to do is they get caught up in their own will, their own belief for things. And they're actually ignoring the feedback that comes from the client. Um, yeah. So it's, it's such a complicated area. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it, it is. It really is. Um, Andy, uh, we're going to be talking about um, your metaphors of movement um, later on in today's show. Um, um, for now, can you tell us where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Well, the easiest place is to go to andrewtaustin.com. It's very easy to remember because it's my name, andrewtaustin.com. Um, that's the, the main site now. That I was known for a site called 23nlpeople.com, yeah. which was back in the day, it was the biggest NLP site. Um, but there wasn't many websites back then. Um, I was one of the early adopters of the internet and, and sticking up a website way back when. Um, most of the good stuff from that site has been transferred to andrewtaustin.com. Um, the main site there has, has long since gone. It was also out of date. Um, and the other one is metaphorsofmovement.com as well. Metaphorsofmovement.com. And there will be um, links to all of these sites that we're mentioning today uh, over at the, uh, the, the episode page for today. For now, Andy, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll be back with Andrew Austin in just a short while. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. As I said, we'll be back with Andy Austin for our professional discussion shortly. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. Our first story is included this week simply because I want to read the headline. A big smile is creeping, crawling over my face right now. Okay, let's straighten my face up. The, the headline is, 
blindfolded hypnotist Rasti Rostelli accidentally shoots student with arrow. <laughs> yeah, th- indeed, this is the story. that famous Dutch hypnotist Rasti Rostelli was seriously let down by his supernatural powers at a crucial moment in Nijmegen in... Uh, uh, in recent weeks. During a performance at the Han University of Applied Scientists, a trick in which he shoots a crossbow at a target while blindfolded went a tad wrong and the arrow hit a student in the chin. Uh, Rostelli was invited to the university, apparently, um, to deliver a mind and body workshop for uh, creative therapy students. Um, I mean, certainly this is creative therapy, right? Um, According to the article, 125 students watched their fellow student being being shot in the face with an arrow. Um, I mean, thankfully, I mean, we can laugh about this because the victim was not seriously injured. Okay, so I'm qualifying my giggles and guffaws there. There was a small injury that was treated with a plaster. Institute director Wouter van der Loo said to a local newspaper. But the rest of the workshop was cancelled, sadly. Uh, Rostelli waited to hear how the boy was doing and then he left. Um, He did say that he did not know how it could have gone wrong. Usually it always goes well, he said in an interview. Uh, Van der Loo uh, continued that they did not know Rostelli's show would include him firing a crossbow blindfolded. He was hired for an hour-long hypnosis show, after which the students and lecturers would have discussed how hypnosis worked and the pros and cons of such a treatment. Um, Now, I personally have scoured the article and other reports for how uh, firing crossbows at students was anything to do with hypnosis or mind-body, but I seem to have come up empty-handed every time so far, I'm sorry to say. So, on to our our second story of this week. Our next news story is from Cosmopolitan magazine. It's entitled, I got hypnotised to boost my confidence and feel like a bombshell. And the, the, the subtitle is, When I snap my fingers, you will feel like a babe. So, yes, this is a Cosmopolitan um, article by Loni Venti, uh, who had the opportunity to try hypnosis, hoping, as she puts it, that, that, that I could be mind-tricked into rising and shining. So she went there initially with a, a view of, of getting up early in the mornings. And she states, when I walked into Maha Rose, a holistic healing centre in Brooklyn, I was confronted with a no shoes policy. Thank God I had a fresh peddy. Incense burning like crazy and tapestries draped everywhere. Now, this sounds exactly like my own therapeutic offices. Very cosmic indeed. Now, Loni went on to tell the therapist that she does not often feel good about herself. And I'll quote her here, um, and, 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 and because this, this gets slightly more serious now. There have been days when I couldn't even leave my apartment because I felt so overwhelmingly uncomfortable in my skin. It's actually been a huge cause of stress in my life and my relationship, leaving me feeling jealous, crazy, and kind of a handful. When I'm really down, I've missed events, cancelled dates, and stayed at work until midnight to avoid being seen. Once I cried at a Mets game because I felt like every girl there looked like a playmate in jeans and cute cropped baseball tees and I looked like a frumpy soccer mum. It got pretty hysterical and I punched the concrete wall and made my knuckles bleed. 
Now, this is sad to read about, and uh, the therapist that greeted her was concerned about her, her body dysmorphia, and they got to work on it using hypnotherapy. And um, um, Loney, the, 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 the lady in the article, then describes a lovely experience that she had, and she describes a therapy intervention where she examined things that made her feel unpretty, things that made her feel good about herself whilst hypnotised, and she wasn't initially convinced about the treatment, but when she woke up the next morning, she felt wonderful, she knew it had made a difference to the way she felt herself Um, and she's quoted as saying it wasn't until I woke up the next day that I noticed a difference I felt amazing the first thing in my closet fit perfectly my liquid eyeliner winged out flawlessly on the first try my husband my boss the Starbucks guy pretty much everyone I saw complimented me on something So it was a great outcome, um, um, a victory for the field of hypnosis and good to see Cosmopolitan giving their very distinctive spin on the subject matter of hypnosis. Thirdly, and finally this week, I'm really chuffed, I mean really chuffed to be sharing this particular story. The title, Sherborne Mum of Three, Preparing for Kickboxing Cage Fight at Club Neo in Yeovil. Now, the reason I'm so chuffed about this is because the Sherborne-based mum of three, Summer Reedy, who features in this article, um, is a graduate of my own hypnotherapy training college. Um, um, And she's preparing to release her inner fighter at a club in Yeovil at the start of November this year. And I shall quote, The 36-year-old is training hard at Yeovil Fight Academy, determined to prove to herself that she is physically and mentally tough enough for the cage fight challenge in November. So, yep, Summer is training hard at this academy. She's determined to prove to herself that she's physically and mentally tough enough for the challenge. And she's quoted as saying, I started kickboxing recently and immediately knew I loved it. It's not about aggression, it's about concentration, dedication and strategy. It's a discipline and requires precision and fast thinking. It's great. Um, So Summer Reedy, who runs a hypnotherapy practice in Sherbourne, she said also, I've got three boys and I want to show them they can do anything if they believe in themselves. I'm proud that they see how much I value staying physically fit and how important it is to challenge yourself. This is out of my comfort zone, but that's what makes it exciting. I help clients deal with all kinds of issues in their life, from weight loss and stopping smoking to confidence building, dealing with phobias or anxiety issues. I love showing people that the answers to so many problems lie within themselves. They can do it if they want to. Everyone deserves to realise their potential. Well said and very well done, Summer. I think you are awesome. We'll be supporting you uh, um, from from my home uh, in November when you're having your cage fight. Links to all of these media stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Okay, next up, we have this week's professional discussion. Um, I welcome back Andrew Austin. When I spoke with Andy briefly about what we'd discuss, I had made a couple of suggestions and he said that metaphors of movement would be more interesting or stimulating to discuss for this kind of podcast media. And I really wanted to hear about it and understand it better. Lots of people had spoken to me about it prior as well. 
Um, it's always going to be a challenge to fully unravel a topic that usually involves a great deal of thorough training um, and, and, and trying to unravel it all in a soundbite or two on a podcast. Andy teaches metaphors of movement in the UK, India, USA, Poland, Sweden, Holland, Israel, Japan to a very wide range of people that attend his classes. So here is this week's professional discussion with Andy Austin about metaphors of movement. Enjoy. Okay, uh, we're back with uh, Mr. Andrew Austin now. We're going to talk about and explore uh, metaphors of movement. Um, Andy, for people that that are listening that perhaps are, are completely new to metaphors of movement... Can you just give us a brief idea, first of all, um, um, what, what is it? What are we talking about here? Right. This is the sort of m- more recent developments that I've come up with. Um, and it's built in, in a reaction, as a reaction, to the success industry. Mm. The success industry, the personal development industry, is all about outcomes. You can have the millionaire mindset. You can get to where you want to be. You can be unstoppable. You can just attract from the universe everything that the universe will supply. And I never saw any evidence of actually that working. Mm. Um, Now, as a clinician, as as a therapist, I'm mostly dealing with people with pretty serious problems. Um, They can't just be swished away or one or two suggestions and, hey, it's amazing, their lives are transformed. Um, A lot of people just don't simply work that way, um, and there's a lot of damaged people. So I needed a a better way of working with people. Now, metaphors of movement is an area of exploration of unconscious communication. So it's the portions of spoken communication that generally occurs without conscious awareness, as in the person's not paying attention to the structure of it. Most of this is idiomatic communication. So it's idioms or expressions that are portions of metaphor. Mm. The observation is that an idiom like I'm on an uphill struggle, I'm held back, I'm stuck, those kind of things are actually incredibly information-dense structures. And that if we pay attention to them, we can infer and deduce the logical structure by which the person reasons about their difficulty. Mm. So, for example, if I just say to you, I'm stuck, um, you immediately know I'm not moving forwards, so I'm not getting to where I want to be. I can't take any steps to help myself because I'm stuck. Um, I'm not able to do what's right because I'm stuck. I can't explore what's left. Mm. Um, I can't back out, for example, because I'm stuck. So lots and lots of things, and all the idioms have all these sort of implications. Now, by exploring them, what we do is we don't look at the outcome. We're not looking at, this is not a solution-focused way of working. This is aligning the person with an understanding and an experience of what the problem actually is. You see, all the time that we're thinking about a solution um, or an outcome, we're simply thinking about everything the problem is not. So if I'm poor, I can fantasize about winning the lottery but that doesn't help me deal with my poverty. But what it does do is distract me from my poverty. Now, those, those outcome-focused, um, those solution-focused or outcome-focused therapies are extremely good at producing kinesthetic change on the simple principle that what they're doing the majority of the time 
is simply distracting the person from what is into thinking about what is not. Mm. As in, I don't have the million pounds, but if I think about it, make the picture bigger and brighter in my mind and blah, 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 the next thing you know, yeah, I feel a bit better. But of course you do, because you're not thinking about the suffering. So what I wanted to do was to develop a way of getting a person into a situation whereby they're no longer having all the ego stuff and all the emotional distractions that we, we, we fill our day with so that the person can understand what their situation actually is in a linear fashion. So basically I have a one-to-one relationship between my representation of the problem and the actual problem. Once we've got that, it becomes very obvious what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's a hard sell because selling outcomes, selling success is really easy. Yeah. Metaphors of movement, come and learn <laughs> how bad your life is. Exact <laughs> yeah. fashion in which it's bad. That's really not the easiest set in the world. Um, so I, I really want to explore that um, um, in a bit more depth in a moment. Could we just take a, a slight step backwards and just, just tell us how did it come to be? What's the what's the background here? Um, um, how did you how how was it devised? What was it? Where did it come from? Well, um, the original idea it was based on an original idea from Charles Faulkner. Yeah. Um, through some of the conversations with him, um, he he sort of opened up a whole area of stuff I'd never considered before, um, and then I started considering it. And then as a result of that, the building on Charles's idea um, about idiomatic communication or, or metaphorical communication, um, the rest basically has evolved and is still evolving um, over the last few years. Um, so that's one area. Now, simultaneously, um, some, some, may, some people may be aware or not, I have a background in mysticism and magic, as in, as in occult magic rather than card magic doing yeah. tricks yeah. now that i mean that for me dates back to being a teenager and then throughout my 20s what i discovered with doing the metaphors work is that so much of the stuff that i'm now doing with my clients philosophically and symbolically is exactly the same as what i am seeing in the the the, the lodges and the magical societies mm of a particular type of experience, and it's the initiatory experience. In therapy, what we're doing is we're removing symptoms. We're basically ameliorating the symptoms, make the person feel better, give them motivation, um, relieve suffering, relieve pain, symptomatic relief. In an initiation, what happens is you're part of a drama that teaches you some perceptions or some resources or makes you aware of certain things, that you you then are taught how to put them together to deal with your own life. Mm. So in initiation, the platform, the stage is set, the drama is enacted, but no one tells the initiate what to do or what to experience. This is the form that Metaphors of Movement now takes. And the the, the one-to-one sessions they do with people are built around graded experience. Um, and there's a particular structure by which we can take a person along a metaphorical initiatory journey. Each step, each, each portion of the experience opens up new possibilities to them about what they can do about the here and now. Mm. I don't know if any of that makes any sense to people. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so <laughs> it makes in, sense to me. In, 
in, in real life terms, then, um, um, when when working with someone, is it does it does it have an underpinning philosophy that you that, that, that must be adhered to in order for it to be effective? No, that, I can't answer that question. I cannot answer that for the simple reason, because it can't be effective because I'm not solving anything. Ah, of course, of course. Well, well, there I go again with with the outcome focus. The question I get asked is, will metaphors of movement work for depression? Yeah, sure. I can't, it'd be like saying, does southern Italy um, bananas? Yeah. (laughs) It just doesn't doesn't actually fit together, although it might might sound meaningful on the surface. What we're doing is we're introducing people to the reality of their lives. Right. So, so, what so, we're not doing is dismissing all those other things of symptomatic relief and other change work models. This is a change work model. There's a, there's a particular predilection amongst therapists to have the technique, the model, yeah. that is the best model and is superior to all the others. Yeah. And this is just an option available to people. Right. And so it, it becomes an option that, that, that anybody can, be apply, can apply. But when we're talking about... A, about it being effective, then um, um, there's no such thing as it being effective or not being effective. I, I can't. I can't answer the question about efficacy because. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. I, and and I should stop trying to work that out for myself in my head. <laughs> and my line of inquiry will go in the, in, the, in a correct direction. Um, um, so therefore, can you give us um, um, perhaps a, an illustration of it? Typically, um, 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 how a typical session would would, would go. Or, or, or an idea or, or an illustration of, of, of what, what might happen with, with metaphors of movement? Yeah, um, a person will come to me with a particular problem. Um, they'll want to tell me all about it. Usually they do. Um, let me tell you about my suffering. Yeah. Now, at that point, I'm going to interrupt them because I don't really want to know about the suffering. Um, because simply, I believe them. I believe that they suffer. The fact that they've, <laughs> the fact that they've come to see me in the first place... Um, People have to be pretty bad. <laughs> I know what yeah. I'll do. I'll, I'll book an appointment with that weird guy that lives by the sea. <laughs> um, so I get that they're already, already in the state of suffering. What I want to know is what it's like. So I'm, I'm going to push for a metaphor. Now, f- for a lot of people, it's, it's getting easier, of course. Now more and more people are aware of what I do. Um, but for a lot of people, they, they want to keep talking about the suffering. So I will, I will guide them into a different way of thinking about their, their particular problem. Now, once they've given me the metaphor, we can explore that. So we'll develop it out um, in in all directions. Just as an aside here, here, here's a weird observation. Memory is defined by sub-modalities. So it's defined by, is it moving or still? Is it three dimensions or two, bright or dull, and so on? Yeah. And so basically, you can be dissociated from a memory. Yeah. Because you can see yourself. Yeah. Now, metaphor is not. Metaphor is not defined by submodalities. Um, because it's proprioceptive, and this is the stuff that comes from Charles Falkland's work. Um, metaphor is proprioceptive, so it's about three-dimensional space, where things are located. And it's infinite in all directions. Mm. Now, what this means is that... Now, most people don't realize that because they're only aware of certain portions of the experience. What I'm going to do is open up all the rest of the experience, open up all of the other directions and possibilities that, that are inherently existing within that metaphorical system. Now, because metaphors are infinite in all directions, um, at the point of elicitation, I am part of the metaphor because I'm now existent within it. 
So I take an active role along with the metaphor. Because the person is existing within their metaphor and they have a whole bunch of logical structures by which they operate as a result. So I'm stuck. I'm up against a brick wall. I bash my head against the brick wall every day. They're operating as though there's a brick wall. Mm. But I'm going to now be part of that metaphor too. Um, and so I'm going to interact as a, as a participant within their experience. So rather than take the clinical dissociated role um, or the godlike role or whatever, um, I'm going to be a participant within that. And what I'm going to do is guide that person to different aspects of that experience. Mm, mm. And um, um, if it um, helps, the introduction, just the introduction to the process, takes four days. Um, so it's going to be, it is actually quite hard for me to try and describe yeah. it. Yeah, and it, here I am trying to. Uh, I'm asking you to put it in a media-friendly soundbite, um, which I, which I imagine is a gargantuan I task. Wish I could. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I know that um, 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 some people have pa- have drawn some some small parallels between metaphors of movement and um, clean language. That's um, because most of the people that have done that have two things in common. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they've never done metaphors of movement. Yes. And they've never done clean language. Yeah. But they know enough about both to say they're the same. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that um I'm, I know that some articles have been written to 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 point out the distinctions between the two as well. Um um, um they're so different. I've had plenty this year I have had plenty of clean language practitioners of varying, varying levels of training attend the courses. Not a single person has said there's anything similar between the two. No, no, no. Okay, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It's a bit like, I'm going to invoke Godwin's law here, it's a bit like saying the Nazis were exactly the same as the Catholic Irish. Right, yeah. Because they both believe in God. Yeah. They're working because we're working with the same. That was a terrible. That was just terrible. That's one. Edit that one out. Don't don't include that. Because essentially, because they they both operate from metaphors, um, there's an assumption that they're going to be the same thing. Sure. Um, and there's just nothing. They're, they're they're just not the same. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so with regards to the actual name, metaphors of movement. What what is the movement specifically? Is it referring to something particular? Is it referring to movement, uh, you know, movement of, of our imagination, movement of our representation? No, no we literally move a person within the metaphor. Ah, right. Metaphors are infinite in all directions. Now, yeah. here's, here's the other little oddity: they're geocentric, um, and, and uh, so basically, once at the point that you elicit, you're always at the centre, yeah. um, and the metaphor goes infinitely in all directions. If you take one step to the left within the metaphor you're still at the centre, even though you've moved through space. Mm. Now, the weird thing is, um, if we listen to that for now, and then you need to physically move, literally in, in physical space, yeah. you also move through the metaphor. So the name came through a lot of the early, the early exercises, which actually we don't do anymore in the, in the training, um, where that's what we were getting people to do. Mm. But at the time, you see, I didn't know about the geocentricity of metaphor and dissertation. And it was, that was an observation that came later. Yeah. So the, the name actually came from Steve Andreas in a reference to a presentation that I did over in the States 
Um, and he referred to it as Andrew's exploration of metaphors of movement. It wasn't capitalized. It wasn't being used as a name. It was being used as a descriptor of some of the exercises I'd set the group to do. I then sort of seized upon that. Well, that's a good name. It's got the M's. It's got the It's got the repetition. It flows off the tongue. Um, and, of course, it was only quite a while later that I discovered that Charles Faulkner had already produced a product entitled The Metaphors of Movement. Yeah which fortunately has a different subject matter. <laughs> so there is, I would love to go, yes, I came up that myself. It's a great name. I, I didn't. I kind of appropriated it in haste um, and probably should have done a little bit more homework um, in doing, before doing so. Yeah, yeah. Um, this may sound like a peculiar question. Um, 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 do people have their eyes closed when they are doing it? Adam, I'm very sorry. I lost you then. The we lost communication uh, from you. Could you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I was just going to say that I realise this may sound like a, a peculiar question. Um, um, but do um, do, do do the individuals have their eyes closed during this process? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. So it, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I had this 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 idea of 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 people um, almost like almost like a metaphorical oculus headset on exploring these infinite um, um, areas inside of their mind. Um, and I, I just imagined that it would be a lot easier to do if I had my eyes closed. Yeah, some people will. Um, quite often we see people actually get up and start physically moving around in space. And sometimes they do, they do that spontaneously without you know necessary command by myself. And some people are doing that with their eyes closed, <laughs> which means mm. they need a little bit of guidance. Yeah. And some people are doing that with their eyes open. So it, it, I leave it up to the individuals, really, um, whatever they prefer. Yeah, yeah. And so for people that are interested, that have had their, their appetite whetted as far as um, this subject is, is concerned, is it the Metaphors of Movement website um, that's just metaphorsofmovement.com where they go? That's the one. And there are loads videos on there and um, there's all sorts of free downloads there's a number of pdf articles lots of web pages there is a lot of information that people might want to have a look at right. um, especially those that go yes that's metaphors that's all about clean language yeah just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, they might always want to pay a little bit of attention yeah 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 great great um, um i hope that lots of people um go and take a look at that um, um, and um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for being for being so generous with your information today, um, um, Andy. And um, um, I, I'd love to get you back on because when when I put a shout out with regards to to who we've got coming on the show and and what you know, are there any extra questions? Lots of other people wanted to um, to ask you about some some of the other. Um, and pioneering things that you do as well and um, so perhaps i'll manage to persuade you to come back on and talk about some other stuff at a future date as well i'll be delighted i think one of the things people probably want me on for is to be dishing the dirt <laughs> but i know it's one of the things that i'm known for people oh get get austin he, he he'll say something controversial about such and such a person <laughs> yeah um, um 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 you know certainly certainly um uh, you know I, I, I think a lot of people were um, were expecting you to be provocative, um, um, but I think also a lot of people wanted to know about um, um, IEMT um, um, too, and um, but the metaphors of movement. I mean, sounds absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to be stopping by the website myself today. Thank you, Adam. Uh, thank you, Andy.
again, I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Some fascinating information there. And, uh, and well done, me, for being such a consummate professional podcaster by asking questions that could not be answered and then asking the same unanswerable questions again. Uh, a link to the Metaphors of Movement website and Andy's own personal site both feature at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. So on to this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week. Uh, The fact is, there is a scientific theory of explaining hypnosis that sides with neither state or non-state stances. That's our fact. Now let me explain that that is because cold theory, cold control theory, creates a distinction between being in a certain mental state and being aware of being in that state. It refers to first, second and third order states, which include varying degrees of awareness and is absolutely fascinating. I highly recommend you go and read about cold control theory. It'll put a big smile on the faces of you true hypnosis geeks who are yet to discover it. I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode of the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next week, I'll be welcoming weight reduction and marketing specialist Sheila Granger. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to Andy Austin and thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. (music) 